On the evening of April 19, 1989, approximately 30 teenagers took to Central Park in New York City, where some of them robbed and assaulted homeless people, bicyclists, and pedestrians. The police department received many calls and ended up detaining approximately 20 teenagers. At approximately 1.30 a.m. on April 20, 1989, a woman who was later identified as 28-year-old Trisha Miley was found unconscious. She had been severely beaten and raped, but was still alive, albeit barely. As a result, police began focusing their efforts on finding the individual or individuals who had assaulted Miss Miley. Two boys who were detained on April 19th, Kevin Richardson, age 14, and Raymond Santana, also age 14, were identified by police as suspects that evening. The following day, 15-year-old Antron McRae and 15-year-old Yusuf Salam were brought in by police as some of the other youth had reported they had also been involved in the robberies and assaults that occurred the previous night. 16-year-old Corey Wise went to the police station with Salam only to offer him moral support, and he was not brought in as a suspect. However, all five boys became the police's prime suspects for the rape and assault of Miss Miley. The boys were questioned by police individually for at least seven hours each. Some of them were not allowed to eat, drink, or use the bathroom for extended periods of time. Some of the boys had not been allowed to sleep and had been awake for two days by the time the interrogations ended. None of their parents were present during the interrogations and no attorneys were present. Four of the boys ended up providing written statements and videotaped confessions. Salam was the only one who did not provide either a written statement or confession, as his mother came to the police station and refused to allow him to continue being questioned by the police. However, he had already made several verbal statements indicating he had witnessed the rape, after police told him fingerprints had been found at the scene of the crime, and he would be charged if these prints matched his own. Although all five boys eventually confessed to being involved in the crime, all of the confessions included inaccurate and conflicting information about when, where, and how the rape and assault occurred. None actually confessed to committing the rape. Rather, they all stated they witnessed others rape her. They additionally identified other people who had committed the rape, and they accused other teenagers who were never charged. All of the boys retracted their confessions within the following weeks, saying that they had been intimidated and coerced into making these statements. However, all of their confessions were allowed to be admitted into evidence at their trials. DNA recovered at the crime scene did not match the DNA from any of the boys. On April 21, 1989, the boys' names were released to the public by the press, despite this being prohibited, as all but one was under the age of 16. This resulted in them receiving serious threats. However, the boys were not even formally indicted until May 10, 1989. Salam, McRae, and Santana stood trial from June to August 1990. All three were acquitted of attempted murder, but convicted of rape and assault. They were each sentenced to the maximum sentence allowed for juveniles, which was five to ten years in a youth correctional facility. Richardson and Wise had a separate trial in December 1990. During the trial, the recorded confessions were presented by the prosecution while the defense attorney stated that both boys had intellectual limitations, which would have rendered them unable 
to complete the written confessions on their own. Richardson was convicted of attempted murder, sodomy, robbery, assault, and riot. He was sentenced to serve five to ten years in a youth correctional facility. Wise was the only of the boys to be charged as an adult. He was acquitted of rape and attempted murder, but was convicted of sexual abuse, assault, and riot. He was sentenced to five to 15 years in adult prison. The four younger boys each served between six and seven years in youth corrections, but Wise served his time in adult prison. All continued to maintain their innocence, and four of the five appealed their convictions. However, their appeals were unsuccessful. In 2001, Matias Reyes, a convicted rapist and murderer, was serving a life sentence in the New York Department of Corrections. Although he was never identified as a suspect in Trisha Miley's case, he was convicted of raping other women and was believed to have raped another woman in Central Park two days before Miss Miley was attacked. Reyes and Wise happened to be in the same prison in 2001, the Auburn Correctional Facility, where they met. Shortly thereafter, Reyes confessed to law enforcement that he had been the sole perpetrator who assaulted and raped Trisha Miley on April 19, 1989. He reportedly provided information about the case that only the attacker would know. Reyes allowed his DNA to be tested, and it matched the DNA at the crime scene. Reyes had been 17 years old at the time. Despite his confession, he was never charged with this crime, as the statute of limitations had expired. However, given Reyes's confession, which was corroborated by the evidence, Wise was released from prison and the convictions of all five were vacated on December 19, 2002. In 2003, Richardson, Santana, and McRae sued the city of New York for racial discrimination, emotional distress, and malicious prosecution. However, the city initially would not settle the lawsuits as they argued they had done no wrong. However, in 2014, New York City announced a settlement of the case. It is estimated that the five received a total of approximately $41 million, with Wise receiving the largest amount as he had served six years longer than the other four. Although many people believe the five were wrongfully convicted, some still argue that the five were guilty, that the police committed no wrongdoing, and that their convictions never should have been vacated. This episode is about the Central Park Five. Welcome to Psychology After Dark. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. 
David, I'm so happy to be back for this episode. Yeah, you were out on assignment doing things all kinds of forensic-y, I guess. Yeah, I was out of training and I learned a lot, but I really missed being able to do the podcast. I have to say, though, I loved your episode uh, about your trip to Mexico City with your dad. Thank you. And talking about the cult of Santa Muerte. I'm so excited to hear from Antonio Primavera. And I understand he's going to be coming back for an interview in a future episode. Correct. He promised. All right. And he's going to talk more about his research and the cult itself, right? That's right. Yeah. So hopefully soon, we will definitely uh, let everybody know when that comes out. Awesome. So let's get into this episode's topic, the Central Park Five. You know, this case happened 20... 20 years ago? 30 years? Almost? No, 30 years ago. Right. I'm terrible at math. That's why I'm a psychologist. Yeah, it's harder when you're you're doing it with years. So even though this case is 30 years old, it's been all over the media lately. There have been shows, documentaries, news articles, um, and interviews with the five who are now men. They're no longer boys. Right. Um, And they've been kind of called the Central Park Five. And we really wanted to talk about this story because it's it's really tragic. I mean, what happened to Trisha Miley was horrific, but also what happened to the five boys was really terrible. I mean, to be falsely convicted, you know, at that age, and then to spend your youth incarcerated for crimes that you didn't commit, I can't even imagine. Right. I think that the... The representation that we saw on Netflix, mm-hmm. When They See Us, mm-hmm. was uh, incredibly powerful. I think it was uh, obviously a dramatized version of these events, but one that um, I think they did a really good job on. I think it really communicated that suffering, the yeah. suffering of a lot of people that this case surrounded, including the parents of the Central Park Five, Trisha Miley. Trisha Miley. And right. I mean, she's still, she continues to have problems related to that assault to this day. And although she said at the boys' trials that she didn't have memory of the actual assault, um, it certainly impacted her life and, and continues to impact her life even now. Oh, I'm sure. The body remembers. Right. Exactly. Whether, whether or not the mind does consciously or not. Exactly. So, you know, I realize that there are still people who believe the five were guilty, but, you know, the courts have determined that they were innocent and all of their convictions have been vacated, like I spoke about earlier. And, you know, given the evidence, the confession of Matias Reyes, I really do believe these five were wrongly convicted. So we wanted to talk a little bit about this case because I think there are many aspects of it that are conversation worthy. And I I know that we had a lot of conversation watching the stories, reading the the recent news stories about it, doing research for this case. So I wanted to talk first off a little bit about the psychology of false confessions. As it seems, the confessions provided by the boys were the main pieces of evidence used to convict them. I mean, even though they had DNA evidence back then, that showed that didn't match the boys, that didn't factor in or it wasn't weighted as heavily as the fact that they had confessed to these crimes. Well, it certainly didn't deter the district attorney and uh, the police from pursuing a case against these kids. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in general, juries weigh confessions pretty heavily at trial. 
they figure, and I think it, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, when you think about why would somebody confess to doing something that they didn't do? Sure. That's kind of hard to understand. I think that's the intuitive thing to think, you know? I think that that is what we would expect people to think. So in the interest of providing some background on this, I wanted to talk briefly about police interview methods in the United States and in some other countries as well. So just a disclaimer, I'm not a police interrogator. I've not been trained in these methods myself, but I have done some reading, some research in this area. It is an area that I lecture about a bit in my forensic psychology class as well. So in the United States, police are trained in a variety of interrogation methods, but probably the most popular one is called the Reed Method or the Reed Technique, which is named after John E. Reed, who is a well-known police interrogator, and I believe he was also a polygraph examiner. This technique is what most people probably think about when they think about police interrogation. So just another disclaimer, I'm going to briefly outline some of the criticisms of this method, which are commonly cited in the research on false confessions. John E. Reed and Associates Incorporated, the the company that does the the training for the Reed technique, they absolutely 100 flat out disagree with these criticisms. Of course. Yeah, and they've, they've argued that false confessions obtained by law enforcement using this method were generally due to officers not following their guidelines and training. So basically officers were going off script and they say that's why people tended to falsely confess. It wasn't because of their method. So uh, the Reed Associates, they have an entire document on their website countering these criticisms. And if you're interested in reading more about that and, and kind of seeing their view of things, we will post a link to that on our discussion page on our website. But like I said, many critics state that this method is, it's flawed because number one, it's highly confrontational and the goal of the interrogation is obtaining a confession. So the re-technique is generally described as having three phases, the custody and isolation phase, the confrontation phase, and the minimization phase. So in the first phase, the suspect is detained and then placed in a room where he or she is isolated from other people for a period of time. So I think about like some of the crime shows that you and I watch. Right. And this is always what you see them do, right? They take the people and they put them in a room and they just leave them there and they're behind the the mirror and the suspect can't see them and they watch them kind of just sweat it out for a few minutes. They're putting them on ice, essentially. Right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So to speak. I like that term. So after they're in there for a period of time, it kind of gives a chance for their anxiety to increase. Then the police interrogator comes in and confronts the suspect. And Reed says that, you know, they're supposed to be just kind of information gathering at this point. And if there's anything that suggests that this person is guilty, then they really kind of hit hard on that confrontation piece. So during this phase, they're allowed to tell the suspects that they know that they're guilty They can even make false statements about evidence. So in the United States, it's not a crime for police to lie to suspects during interrogations. Now, that is something significantly different from other first world countries, correct? Right. So like in Canada and in uh, Western Europe, most of the countries, that is not allowed. Police are not allowed to lie to suspects. Okay. But that's something that the courts in the United States have held up time and time again, saying that that is okay to do. That's legal. That's not a violation of people's rights. Here. Here Here, in the United States. Here in the United States, right. Okay. 
So during the third phase, the suspect is told that committing the crime is either understandable or that it's not as serious as one might think. This can also be the phase where if the bad cop has been doing the interrogation, they bring in another officer who's now the good cop and is kind of like, well, yeah, I absolutely could see how somebody would do this or it's totally understandable. Um, again, it's called minimizations, trying to minimize the impact or, or um, the severity of what they did to make it more likely that somebody would confess to it. Well, and minimize the consequences of what they did as well, right? The potential consequences. They potentially can and say, you know, if you talk to us, things are going to go a lot better for you. Um, I don't know that they can make outright promises with regard to like sentence or anything, ah. but I think that they can can kind of suggest that this is going to be a whole lot easier if you just talk to us. Okay. So the re-technique is widely used, as I mentioned, and proponents state that it's a very effective method for obtaining confessions. And if you think about those steps, I could see how it would be very effective at obtaining confessions. Um, but what's interesting, some of the research that I've read said that, I mean, so most people end up talking to police after they've been detained or arrested and, and given their Miranda warning. And we all know that you should never do that, right? You should never talk to police without an attorney. And yet most people do that. And they said that people who go through an interrogation, approximately 70% of them are willing to just confess even without being confronted on it. So that kind of begs the question, like how much confrontation is actually necessary and what, you know, how many people are you really going to get to confess simply from these techniques? Hmm. So I'll just kind of throw that out there as, as something to think about. So as confessions are highly weighted by juries, it's very desirable for police to obtain this type of evidence. However, critics of this technique argue that it, it can be coercive. And there's evidence to suggest that the read technique increases the probability that an innocent person will confess to a crime. There are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that officers interrogating suspects often already believe the suspect to be guilty. So this can increase the risk of something called confirmation bias. This happens when a person comes in with a preconceived belief, and as a result, they only pay attention to evidence that supports this belief. And they'll tend to dismiss, excuse, or ignore any contradictory evidence. Additionally, people tend to overestimate their ability to detect deception based on others' behavior. So you'll hear people, well, I think he was lying to me because he was fidgeting, right? Or he looked up into the left, and so that must mean that he's lying. Well, that he's accessing, I think the old, uh, that I saw in the movie The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson, he explains that if you look... And I don't remember which is which, but if you look towards one side, up and towards one side, you're accessing one part of your brain that says you're accessing memory. If you look the other way, you're accessing the part that makes things up, your imagination. Well, I got to make up a story. And so according to Samuel L. Jackson right. in the movie The Negotiator, that is something that you look for as somebody to uh, who is looking for whether or not somebody's trying to deceive you or not. Right. And, and there are still a lot of people that that believe that you can tell whether or not somebody's lying strictly based on their behavioral presentation. Right. Um, but what research is finding is that that's actually not a great way to detect deception. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on about some other better ways to detect if somebody is, is lying or being dishonest. So even police who've been trained in analyzing behavioral indicators of deception are no better than civilians 
at detecting lying. Wow. Yeah. But the problem is that they tend to be more confident in their ability. So that also contributes to that confirmation bias. Okay. And I know that you had some some additional thoughts or some input on confirmation bias or bias in general. Certainly. I believe, I mean, one of the points that we need to look at here in terms of getting to the truth as it relates to any kind of investigation is this idea of bias. I think it's interesting that the use of the read technique doesn't seem to be overly concerned about this issue. I could be wrong because, again, I'm not an expert in the read technique either. And I know there was a rebuttal document. Although, if I remember correctly, we weren't too impressed by it when well, we looked at it. Well, it's, I think, again, the main, the main um, argument is that it's simply people not using the read technique the way that they intend it to be used. Sure. Okay. And that's fair. They can they can it's, definitely argue that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. it's, it's possible. And it is definitely possible. But there is a lot of research that suggests that the read technique in and of itself is increases the risk of false confessions. Okay. So in other words, it seems that the read technique is better at confirming what you want to hear rather than getting to the truth of the matter. So what I was thinking about in terms of this is the research that I had to do as a PhD student when I was writing my dissertation. As a scholar or someone designing any kind of research study, we have to address the issue of bias. There is simply no way around it. All research, which is after all the pursuit of new knowledge, has to address this issue. Bias can contaminate the most well-intentioned research studies. As such, safeguards to deal with this issue in research generally have to be built into the research method. For me, in my dissertation research, this included things like triangulation, member checking, peer review, etc. I won't go into Those all the like details. sound like really technical terms. <laughs> yeah, some really technical terms that really don't mean much to anybody outside of academia or, you know, the research circles. But you get the idea. There are definite techniques that we use to guard against bias and it's kind of this idea that you have other people look at it too to let you know if you're missing something absolutely right? and this is what we do to keep ourselves honest as researchers right. right if we want to actually add new knowledge to the field we have to be able to do that we have to be able to hold each other accountable and we actually we have some topics coming up in future episodes where we're going to talk about bias in the research and some very famous studies where it's come out that they were incredibly biased. So yeah. this will be something we're coming, we're going to visit again. Okay, so the goal here and the reason for all this is to sort of get you to come to the research table or looking for new knowledge with an open mind. So we don't simply pick out evidence we want to see or hear that confirms our bias. That's what we are actively trying to avoid is just looking for the evidence that confirms what we whatever our theory is or what we think we know already about this subject right right so this is a huge problem in interrogation i think because the interrogator comes to the table immediately biased at least in this case this shifts the interrogation focus from one of trying to uncover the facts to a focus of trying to prove a theory mm-hmm this is a big no-no in research design. Once bias is introduced into the process, the results of the research can then be called into question and criticized. At least it would be in scholarly, more academic circles. They would, you know, peer reviewer would call that out in a heartbeat. Right. And that that's a safeguard, like you said, that's built into research. Absolutely. But doesn't seem to be built into the interrogation process. Right. So I would argue that, you know, the techniques that were used in the Central Park 5 case 
that the police already had a theory. So the purpose of the investigations was to get confessions to fit that theory, which is what you mentioned earlier. It's to get a confession. It's not to discover necessarily new information, right? It's to get a confession, which is something much different right. in nature. I would agree. So it seems like little attention was paid toward getting the facts, but rather the emphasis became proving what they, the police, believed to be true. So in this interrogation process, it ceased being an investigation into who committed the crime and shifted into how do we get these kids to admit what we already believe to be true. So anybody who has a background in research techniques would find this appalling, a bit appalling at least, I I would think, as it allows personal bias to completely hijack the state of mind needed to uncover facts in any kind of a real investigation. In this sense, theories need to come after the evidence is gathered, not before. So we form theories based on the evidence that we find, not the other way around, right? That's the hope, right? I mean, that that's what you're arguing is that that's really the best way to do it and not be biased. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we pose a question mm-hmm. and then we go out to answer that question. If you are a true researcher in the academic sense, you generally are open-minded enough and willing to follow wherever that evidence takes you. And it may take you down a rabbit hole that you never expected. Right. And I do think that detectives, they are researchers in a sense. Absolutely. Right. Their job is to uncover the facts, to figure out what is going on, to make sense of of what happened in a crime. Right. Somehow it seems like they, that idea got away from this case. And it, they just sort of lost that. They lost their ability to remain objective when looking at the evidence that they had, mm-hmm. right? And it became about, again, this confirmation. We're going we're gonna to get these kids to tell us what we know or what we think we know is true. So um, it's interesting to see how much weight continues to be placed on confessions given the advancements that have been made in scientific criminal investigations In the past 30 or so years, DNA evidence continues to prove the innocence of many people who are falsely convicted. The use of surveillance cameras now widely used in business and homes as well as police body cameras continue to change how we investigate and hold law enforcement accountable. Increased use of databases that are now interlinked to locate and disseminate information has also been a game changer in how these techniques continue to evolve. And even psychological research in how we understand criminality has evolved absolutely yeah. yeah i mean that's part of what you do i mean that's actually the main thrust of what you do correct as a forensic psychologist well yeah it's to it's to understand criminal behavior i work in the criminal system so certainly that's something that i'm very interested in and as we learn and i'm constantly reading new research going to trainings doing continuing education right so that i can stay abreast of all of that new knowledge right and so yet this old school or at least this interrogation technique feels old school to me it's still being used right yeah and it is old school i mean it's it's i could be wrong since the 1950s okay so So a lot has happened so when you say when somebody says like good old-fashioned police work this is the kind of stuff that i think about right this is like like this read technique type of interrogation when in fact the rest of the science of um criminology has progressed light years Right. Since that time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, things have really changed. And and really, I mean, that's the hope, right, is that our system continues to get better and that we acknowledge some of the flaws and, and continue to grow. 
So I wanted to talk about another concern with regard to the read technique or, or this type of very confrontational interrogation style. So, you know, like I said, there's been quite a bit of research that suggests that this style can coerce people to falsely confess. So there are actually three types of false confessions. Voluntary false confessions, where the person purposefully provides a false statement in order to gain notoriety, or it might be to protect a loved one. These types of false confessions generally occur in the absence of any type of coercion. And some of these individuals will willingly come forward before ever being identified as a suspect by the police. So this makes me think there several years ago, there was a man that came forward that no one knew about that claimed to have killed John Benny Ramsey. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Of course, yeah. And I think he was like a registered sex offender, but he had not been on anyone's radar and he was in another country. And right. he came forward and said that he had killed her and... As they looked into the case, it didn't take very long for them to realize that this guy had nothing to do with it and that he falsely confessed just for notoriety. So I don't feel like that was what was going on in this case. So the second type is a coerced compliant false confession. So this occurs when a person falsely confesses even though they know they are innocent, but they do it because of police pressure. Some interrogation techniques that have been associated with this type of false confession are prolonged and lengthy interrogations, withholding food or breaks, deceptive statements by police, and pressure to confess. Any of those sound familiar? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sounds like the Central Park Five. Well, yeah, absolutely. So the third type of false confessions are called coerced internalized confessions. And these are interesting. So these happen when the innocent person actually comes to believe that he or she committed the crime. So some factors that are thought to contribute to this type of false confession are the highly suggestible language used during the interrogation, anxiety, fatigue, confusion, and again, police pressure. Sure. So an explanation for why people provide false confessions is the rational choice theory. So this means that for some individuals, confessing, even though it's false, appears to be the most rational choice. A person might believe that there is strong evidence, even if it's false, and that confessing will help them avoid severe punishment. Some people might see it as a way to end a lengthy and highly stressful situation, assuming that additional evidence will be found later that will prove their innocence. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen, juries put more weight on a confession than hard evidence. Right. Interestingly... Ordinary police interrogations last an average of two hours, but the interrogations that were associated with confessions that were later determined to be false lasted an average of 16.3 hours. I can't even begin to imagine. Like, that would be terrible. That would be terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't even really imagine going through all of that. Well, it's like it's two shifts at work. It's two full oh, my gosh. shifts. Yeah. Right? 16 hours. So I could see like at the end of that, wanting to find a way to end the situation, even if it wasn't in my long-term best interest. Right. And I'm an adult. And I like to think that I'm fairly intelligent. And I still could see myself considering that. I can't imagine going through that type of situation at age 14 or 15 or even 16 without a parent or, or a lawyer present. Some kind of advocate, anyway. 
yeah, at least somebody to kind of look to and say, do I have to continue to do this? Because, you know, teenagers tend to obey authority. So this is all, I mean, interesting and we're talking about all this, but how often does this actually happen? I think that's, that's a good question. I mean, we know that the re-technique also, also results in many true confessions. So maybe is the risk worth it in this situation? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to get exact numbers on wrongful convictions because it takes time to determine that a person is innocent. Some people may not pursue exoneration, even if they're innocent, especially if they have like a shorter sentence. They may figure what's the point or exculpatory evidence may not be found. The Innocence Project estimates that around 25% of convicted individuals who were later exonerated had falsely confessed to the crime. So research has identified two main groups that are more susceptible to making false confessions, juveniles and those with intellectual impairments. So the Wall Street Journal indicated in a 2013 article that the National Registry of Exoneration Statistics suggested youth are more likely to falsely confess to crimes. In fact, over the past 25 years, 38% of exonerations for crimes allegedly committed by juveniles under the age of 18 involved false confessions, compared to just 11% for adults. A study in 2004 by Stephen Drisden and Richard A. Leo analyzed 125 cases of proven false confessions. 62% of the individuals in this study who falsely confessed were under age 25, and 35% were under the age of 18. A 2012 study by Samuel Gross and Michael Schaefer looked at 340 exonerees, and in this study, 42% of juvenile exonerees gave a false confession compared to just 8% of adults. Wow. So they also found that the younger the child, the more likely they were to give a false confession. 11 to 14-year-olds were more than twice as likely as 15 to 17-year-olds to falsely confess. Mm -hmm. So, and again, four of the five were in that 14 to 15-year-old range. And the final one was, he was 16 years old, but there were concerns that he had some intellectual limitations at the time. Right. So this poses the question, why are adolescents more likely to provide false confessions? One potential reason is that our brains are not fully developed until we're in our early to mid-20s, and the last part of the brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex. This part of the brain is responsible for tasks related to decision-making, planning, and modulating emotions. Before this part of the brain is fully developed, we're more susceptible to emotional thinking, And I think anyone who's ever been a teenager or raised a teenager or ever been around a teenager can agree that they tend to not make the best decisions because they tend to be more emotional. I mean, we've all known teenagers who make bonehead decisions. I am definitely one of those teenagers. A lot of my friends were one of those teenagers. There are a lot of incredibly smart teenagers out there, no question. But in terms of their impulse control... That's why we give them leeway. Right. right? That's why we don't hold them to the same standards as adults. Absolutely. And I don't, I, I'm one of the people that doesn't believe that we should hold them to the same standard as adults because they're not adults. Yeah, I totally agree. So like you said, adolescents tend to be more impulsive. They tend to give more weight to immediate consequences over long-term consequences. And they tend to be more sensitive to immediate rewards in particular. So you can see how these characteristics could be problematic in an interrogation setting. 
Teenagers tend to be sensitive to authority, they're more suggestible, and if there's a police officer telling them to confess, this could be problematic. Additionally, I could see an adolescent providing a confession to end a lengthy and stressful interrogation, just like we were talking about. In the Central Park 5 case, each of the boys was interrogated for at least seven hours. That is such a long time for a 14-year-old boy. Oh, yeah. We should do a seven-hour podcast at some point just, no. to, just to see. No, people will be like, shut up. <laughs> We've had enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's a long time for anyone, but especially for a teenager and especially without their parents present. They were provided with deceptive information regarding evidence and were pressured to confess. So those were all factors that I talked about that the research has outlined increase the risk of false confessions. So they did look into the police and their interrogation methods, and they were cleared. They were not found to have done anything illegal. But in my opinion, those tactics, that interrogation style, I think could be very problematic for adolescents, and that's what the research supports. So what do we do about this? So many people have proposed changes to the interrogation methods used in the United States, um, especially with those individuals who are considered to be at higher risk of succumbing to police pressure. Or the way we would say it is vulnerable populations, right? Right, right. Adolescents, those with cognitive limitations. Sure. They even suggest um, people who English is is not their first language can also be at a higher risk of providing a false confession. I could see that. So in many European countries, police are not allowed to lie to suspects, as we talked about earlier. One method that has been proposed as an alternative to the read technique is the PEACE model. This is an acronym that stands for each of the five stages of this interview method. Also noteworthy is that it's not called an interrogation model, but rather an investigative interviewing model. So the stages are planning and preparation, engage and explain, Account, which includes clarification and challenging, closure, and evaluation. This model was developed in the United Kingdom in 1992 by a team of experienced law enforcement officers, psychologists, attorneys, and academics. And what's interesting about this method is that it can be used to interview suspects, victims, and witnesses. It's non-confrontational, and its goal is to obtain accurate information in an investigation rather than just obtain a confession. So this technique relies on cognitive indicators of deception rather than behavioral indicators like we were talking about earlier. The read technique tends to rely on those behavioral indicators of deception, which, as we said, are not very good at determining whether a person is lying or not. Right. So when I say behavioral indicators, again, that's we're talking about things like fidgeting, sweating, looking around the room, things like that. So in the read technique, interrogators are trained to pick up on these behaviors with that belief that they're indicative of deception. But I don't know about you, but when I'm anxious, I tend to sweat and fidget and especially if I'm like concerned about what's going on or trying to get out of a situation, I may look around the room And that's part of the problem with these behavioral indicators. Right. It's very difficult to discern between deception and just normal anxiety behavior. And if you're in an interrogation, whether you did it or not, I would imagine you would be very anxious. So cognitive indicators, on the other hand, are verbal cues provided by a person. 
People who are lying tend to have difficulty keeping their story straight. And when providing statements, they'll typically won't go into a lot of detail. They'll have difficulty providing more details when asked, and they won't be able to provide those details consistently over time. So there is a method in the PEACE model to look for deception. There is a method to, you know, to point out inconsistencies, but it's far more focused on gathering information and, and it's thought to protect against that confirmation bias. Well, have you ever heard of Sherlock Holmes? You know, interrogating somebody for seven hours and no, no, I sure haven't. <laughs> right, and then this is the this is the country that sort of birthed, you know, the UK sort of birthed that idea. The peace model, right? right. Exactly, and we'll have a- Scotland Yard. They have a long history of, of police work and crime fighting. Yes, and and it was interesting that a lot of different disciplines contributed to developing this model. One of the things, you know, when I started thinking about, all right you know, the transpersonal sort of angle about this, you know, on this subject, what would the transpersonal angle sort of be? Okay, we need, we know we have problems here. Mm-hmm. There's something, so I'm going to go a little off script here. And hopefully, you know, I'm going to talk from the heart about this, because I think that there is definitely some things that need to be acknowledged in terms of this, that, you know, you and I are not political commentators. Not at all. Certainly not. But there are definitely racial overtones and sociological overtones about this case that I think we have to at least acknowledge. Right. And and Trisha Miley was a white woman. Right. The Central Park Five. Affluent, relatively affluent one. Yeah, woman. she was a banker. Right. She worked in the banking sector. Mm-hmm. And all of the boys were either African-American or Hispanic. Correct. So there is a, a sort of push and pull as I'm looking at this. I think that one of the things that I would like to acknowledge first and foremost is that you and I are both law enforcement officers, which means that we are sworn to protect the Constitution of the United States. Correct. Okay. So, I, and I know, you know, both you and I both knowing each other very well, We this is a something, uh, you know, a duty we take very seriously. Absolutely. So, but at the same time, Right. And this is where, you know, I sort of have to acknowledge these sociological and cultural overtones to this case. I'm a man of color as well. Mm-hmm. I personally have never had an incredibly bad interaction with a police officer. That's not been part of my experience. I grew up in the suburbs, though. I didn't grow up in the inner city. Right. You know, I've had a couple of uncomfortable encounters with police, but definitely nothing that I would on par with anything like this. Sure. So... The first thing I would like to say is being and having 16 years in law enforcement, although I'm not a police officer, you know, it's a very being a police officer is a very different job than what you and I do in corrections. I would agree. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I really have some empathy for the job that they are tasked with. And it's so, an incredibly difficult job. It's an incredibly difficult job. And I, I at, the, at the risk of um, uh, polarizing myself, I like to say that I am very pro-law enforcement. I believe it's a very needed job. I believe that it's a very difficult job. And I believe that it takes an incredible amount of skill to do well. I would agree. So there's that part of it. There's that, there's that angle. And then there's also the part of me as a person of color that really empathizes with the community. We've seen a number of cases where racial overtones have been brought to the surface by a conflict between somebody of color and a police officer. The first one that comes to mind is Ferguson. We were watching a special on that. Well, and even before that, Rodney King. Rodney King. There's uh, there are dozens, dozens of them, right? I mean, we could go on and on and on about, right? There was a um, a podcast that you and I were listening to, and I cannot remember it. I want to say it was an episode of Serial, 
and maybe I'll go back and verify that, but it was where she asked, um, I believe it was the head of the police union or one of the police unions, how can we prevent things like this from happening? And his answer came across as very flippant. And it was, well, we just won't show up. That was serial. That was serial. Yeah, okay. you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and she took that as like a flippant answer. Like, okay, you know, this is guy's not being serious. He's being a smart Alec, right? But there was some truth to what he said. We won't show up. In other words, when you add in the human element, there's always going to be misjudgments and mistakes. And that is something that we have to account for. They're never going to be perfect. Police officers are never going to be perfect. They're going to make decisions sometimes that when we are Monday morning quarterbacking them are going to look like, oh, well, no, he should have done this or she should have done that. But it's very, very difficult when you're in the moment like that. You have a certain amount of training. You know, some officers have more experience than others. And some are just better at what they do than others are. And so this all plays into this decision making. So this is all how different decisions can be made, right? So anytime you add that human element, there are going to be mistakes made. There are going to be bad decisions made. At the same time, Chris Rock in his comedy special also said there are some jobs where you just need to be good at what you do it's pretty important being a police officer is one of those jobs yeah you know i would personally argue that in corrections it's the same way you do need to be good a a bad co can start a riot absolutely can get people hurt or killed absolutely right and so that is something that you know you and i have we hold each other accountable to that because it's like look man if you are not doing your job well you endanger the entire place right easily right so there's this push and pull that's been going on and i've been thinking about this and mulling this over in my head about okay how do we and how do i you know me you know in particular me personally as a transpersonalist advocate for the evolution of law enforcement yeah right because again i really feel like this in method of interrogation this read method is a very it's like i think of like oh old school like these old school police methods meanwhile the science and the technology that we use in law enforcement to solve crimes has moved light years right well and and to be fair this was 30 years ago right but still i mean they're still using this technique even with the knowledge that it does increase the risk of false confessions especially with juveniles and they still continue to use it right so again the DNA evidence suggested that these were not the people they were looking for. To me, that would way, way, way trump any confession that right. a scared kid gives me. The DNA evidence is very clear. It's an objective measure. It's an objective way that we can tell if somebody was present there at the crime scene, right? It seems like, and they just sort of brushed it aside conveniently because they had a narrative that they really wanted to push. Yeah. So the evolution of law enforcement, okay, when we get back to the developmental consciousness model, law enforcement is what we comes from the consciousness level that we would call blue consciousness in the spiral dynamics language. And that's the model that Ken Wilber uses and stuff. And uh, that's, that's what you referred to in our episode on psychopaths. In psychopaths. Okay. So psychopath, psychopathy would be, or um, teenagers, crazy, you know, wilding teenagers and stuff is like, that is what we say is red consciousness. Now, Blue consciousness is just one step above red consciousness. Blue consciousness has a lot of things that sort of mark it, right? It has a lot of characteristics in terms of now suddenly the moral order becomes center, 
Okay, and this is really, we're going to take this crazy energy and we're going to bring order to it. And we're going to do it through all kinds of rules and regulations and a hierarchy, a very clear hierarchy of power. It's also very rooted in community and loyalty. Mm -hmm. Okay, so who does that sound like? Blue Law cops enforcement. To, sounds yeah. like cops Absolutely. to me, right? Absolutely, Absolutely right. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, that level of consciousness is very appropriate to deal with the, the chaotic energy of red consciousness. Mm -hmm. But we have to go beyond that. Well, because there's always a dark side. Of course. Right? There, there may be a lot of very positive things about blue consciousness, but there's also some drawbacks to that way of thinking, right? If, Absolutely. If you're too rigid in it. Well, of course. And so that's where we have the, the blue wall of silence. When cops do get into trouble, we have so few other police that are willing to really step out and say, hey, no, this this person really does need to be held accountable for these actions. Mm -hmm. You and I have experienced this in corrections yeah. as well, yeah. right? And it's because as we, as a law enforcement agency, we have this idea that we have to maintain this appearance of total unity. Otherwise, if you know, we admit that we have bad officers, we're sort of exposing ourselves as being vulnerable right. to this red, very highly power-oriented energy of the criminals. So... There definitely is a part, a place in law enforcement for blue consciousness, for this type of thinking. There's no question about that. However, what makes us, I think, at the prison you and I work in, what makes us good at what we do is that we have a whole range of different personalities and different forms of consciousness working together. So it's not just blue consciousness. It's not just moral authority and order. There's also higher forms, different forms of consciousness also at work. Mm -hmm. To saying, okay, we need all these different types. We need, yeah, sometimes we need the rough and tumble cowboy types, right? That are right. going to use some just intimidation. To get order, sure. To bring, you know, yeah, to bring uh, order back into a chaotic situation. But we also need people like the chaplain who is on the furthest other side of that spectrum, which is I'm going to come in, I'm going to listen to you. We're going to talk, we're going to process, right? You and I working in the psychology department sort of fall in somewhere in between. We are, we have to be very versatile. Yeah. When it we comes have to, to have that. very strong boundaries and be clear about roles, but we also explore kind of that emotional side of it and, and this idea that things are not just black and white. Absolutely. Helping to see the full picture. So Lewis E. Laws, and this is actually something I dug up from my master's thesis when I was writing about um, prisons and using the Wilburian spiral dynamics model. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Lewis E. Laws is a, a former warden of Sing Sing prison in New York. And uh, he put out a vision that he had for correctional officers and this is what he says i believe the man in the ranks should be taught the fundamentals of human behavior and all the incidentals there too i believe that the average mentality of the prison personnel should be higher than the average mental age of its prisoners in order that there may be a proper respect for authority not a respect born of the bludgeon but of sympathetic understanding of inmate problems now if we apply that to police work Mm -hmm. Right. That means that there needs to be as law enforcement, we need to be continuously evolving. And I'm not talking about just the science, not the, just the technology, but the way we perceive 
our role in the greater community. It needs to be constantly evolving, including the thinking. I think that that peace model Mm -hmm. is a very good first step. That is an evolution of an old school sort of rough and tumble cop technique to get information about a crime. I believe that that method, it sounds like, is much more sensitive. And maybe that's not the right word because, you know, I don't want to be labeled a snowflake or anything like that. But <laughs> No, but I, I think that it does, it has these inherent protections, protections against this confirmation bias. It allows the investigator or the person interviewing to be that researcher and to really look and see what's going on and to develop their theories based on the evidence rather than going in with a preconceived notion and just finding evidence to support what they already think that they know. Right. But that's and this gets back to what Chris Rock was saying. We have to be good at this. We have to be able to ride that sort of center ground where it says, okay, we could still come in and use a show of force, but at mm-hmm. the same time be very, very keenly aware that these people have rights. The greater community has rights and we have to respect them. And we do that because every bad interaction they have with a police officer then colors the entire... Well, and there's so much at stake. I mean, so if police get it wrong, or if somebody is coerced into providing a false confession, that ruins people's lives. That takes people's freedoms away. And I think that it's always very important to remember that responsibility as a law enforcement officer. And, and I feel like the peace method is, it's just, it's more humane in a way. There it is. It, it offers a protection for people's rights. Yes. It's very respectful of the rights of individuals, I think. And what's interesting, so people think, well, but if you're not kind of pushing people and, you know, giving them false information, like right. nobody's going to confess. Right. And some of the research studies have found that the peace method or methods like that, that interviewing technique investigative interviewing is actually highly effective at getting confessions from compliant and um, non-compliant suspects. Well, here we are 30 years down the road from the Central Park 5 case. And when you add something like the peace method and they get these pieces of information and stuff like that, and then you put that together with the science, the forensic science of solving crimes now, it almost renders the confession secondary because it's not really that important we have physical evidence that says you were there or you weren't there right and this method of gathering information through something like the peace model provides other opportunities for them to get additional evidence right so you know i so i think it's it it is an important for us to think about these things i think it's very important for us to continue to evolve and to make our criminal justice system better. You know, I would argue that we have one of the best criminal justice systems in the world. Oh, no question. I feel very fortunate to live in this country. However, that doesn't mean it's perfect. No, by there, no means. And there I think, are certainly flaws. Right. And so, again, we have to sit, we have to hold the tension between yes. these polars. Like, it's, it's one thing to say, people say, well, you're either for us or against us. You are the pro-law enforcement or you're not. And it, I, I don't totally disagree with that. It's... We can be pro-law enforcement, but still recognize the limitations of the way we do business today. So I just want to, to leave off with this. Laws goes on to say, Louis E. Laws, the former warden of Sing Sing, goes on to say, it's only by offering the uniformed 
guard an opportunity for life work with possibilities for promotion that we should be able to attract the right kind of people for institutional work. And I think that this is an interesting quote because it can be applied to police. And that the type of people who will be attracted this, to this type of work will want to be part of the process of restoring the community or helping to make it a safer place. They will also want to be part of the mental development of men and women who will in turn also help to make the community a safer place. Yeah, this is big picture stuff. So with the support of the community, talented people could be persuaded into pursuing this type of work, much the same way talented people are drawn to other challenging forms of socially responsible work. And I I guess that's what I would really like to say is I think that as law enforcement, we have to challenge ourselves to evolve. We have to continually evolve. And I think that that's it. We get mired sometimes in what has worked in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. traditions and things that are just that, again, the science and the technology has just left in the dust. And I think that 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 old school sort of mentality is really being challenged by the general public, particularly in poor minority areas where we see these huge conflicts. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and even though, I mean, this occurred 30 years ago, like you said, it's not an issue that has been resolved. And so I think it really does warrant continued conversation and thought um, because it is, it's very important. It's very important. Law enforcement has a very important job. They have a lot of responsibility. And a lot of risk. And a lot of risk. And, and so, you know, we should always be thinking about how to make that better. So we know this was a little bit longer episode, but we just felt like it was an important case and and that there was a lot to say. And we really want to hear what you guys think as well. I mean, do you have thoughts about the interrogation methods in this country or do you live in another country where maybe they don't use the read technique or similar interrogation methods? Where do you see law enforcement going as it evolves? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have some links to the research we discussed on this episode on our website at psychologyafterdark.com on our discussion page. You can also find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please, please, please give us a five-star rating on whatever app you use to listen to us and let your friends know and make sure to subscribe so you don't ever miss an episode. If you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please shoot us an email. You can find our email submission on our website. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. So thanks for joining us. Glad to have you back, Dr. Jessica. Yeah, I'm so happy to be back. So we'll see you guys or we'll hear you guys or you'll hear us in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was produced and edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo.